Welcome to the Water People Podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Hill, joined by our co-host, Dave Rastovich. This season is supported by Patagonia, whose purpose-driven mission is to use business to save our home planet. Today, we're in conversation with Jock Sutherland. Jock grew up on Oahu and is the son of adventurer Audrey Sutherland, who we referenced several times in our conversation, namely her wonderful book, Paddling My Own Canoe. Continuing in the slipstream of his mother's daring, Jock went on to become one of the most versatile surfers of the 1960s. He claimed the cover of Surfer Mag in 1966, won the 1967 Duke Kahanamoku Invitational, and was featured in nearly a dozen surf movies, including Pacific Vibrations. We used to call him the extraterrestrial, fellow surfer Jeff Hackman later said, because he was so good at everything. He could beat anyone at chess or Scrabble, he could smoke more hash than anyone, take more acid, and still go out there and surf better than anyone. In early 1970, to the shock of the surfing world, Jock enlisted in the U.S. Army to fight in Vietnam. He never made it to active duty, but spent two years in the service, after which he was rarely included in surf media. In 1989, Jock was busted for running cocaine and spent two years in prison. In his complexity and cleverness, Jock has held an iconic position in the surfing community, a kind of hero's hero, for his pioneering approach to tube riding and switch foot surfing in waves of consequence. We acknowledge the Bundjalung Nation, the first and ongoing custodians of the land and waters where we work and play, who have lived, worked, and cared for this sea country for tens of thousands of years. Respect and gratitude to all First Nations people who continue to practice the cultural, spiritual, and educational customs of their ancestors. Davey, when did you first come across Jock Sutherland's story? I remember having a little surf trip with Jerry Lopez and Rob Machado in Fiji. Wow, I can't even remember what year it was, but it was quite a long time ago. And here I was, this little dork from New Zealand, Australia, um, starting my surfing life and, I guess, career as well. And I was sitting with Rob and Jerry and we were on Tavarua and they were talking about their influences because I was saying how they had influenced me. And I guess then we got to Rob saying that it was Jerry that influenced him and then Jerry saying it was Jock Sutherland and others, Paul Strau and many other surfers, but Jock Sutherland came up when Jerry was talking about that. And I loved that I hadn't heard that much about him. I loved that he was someone of such surfing skill and underground notoriety in surfing and in waves of consequence, namely all those waves along the North Shore, that Jock had been right there in the centre of the pit at Pipe way back in the day, had been right there taking off deep of the peak at sunset, going switch (laughs) so he could face the wave and make it if it was a really really walled out wave because he was originally a goofy foot surfer, but he would switch if he needed to if there was a fast running right there or at Waimea Bay when a walled west set would come and he would need to get moving, he would switch. So not only was he able to take off of these, you know, big intimidating waves, but do so with switch foot in his mind and be be able to decode the speed and the nature of each single wave in those lineups. Mm -hmm. No leg ropes, big tankers, often very empty lineups, no jet skis in the channel to assist, no real safety nets. And so I remember hearing all of that. And then I also remember around 2001 um, meeting his son Gavin in Hawaii. Uh, He was actually sponsored by Billabong as well at the time. Really great surfer, really friendly, really stoked guy. And I also met him while paddling the Molokai to Oahu Channel for the paddleboard race in 2001. And again, just full of aloha, just like a real stoked guy. So all of those things really added up to a deep respect me and also a curiosity who is this guy who is so skilled and also so celebrated by the most influential and and like you know just amazing surfers of the timeline of the last you know 30 40 50 years 
What's his story? I loved that he didn't hang his hat on surfing world accolades and his happiness didn't seem to depend on how many people knew his name and and being a part of all of that machine. He was of those surf films of that time, but it just didn't seem like the be-all and end-all, and I just really admired that. It was curious that he didn't hang his hat on those accolades um, and felicitous, I guess, in the end, because he did something truly radical in the time in the late 60s, early 70s. He enlisted in the military for the Vietnam War, which was... Like it's, I feel like it's hard to overestimate how anti-surf culture that would have been Mm -hmm. at the time. He was really following his own ideas of what he should be doing with his time. And he, he wasn't finding the surfing accolades and winning contests. He wasn't finding that to be the most fulfilling thing in life. And it's so interesting that the surf media ended up sort of turning their backs on Jock and not including him in, in stories much after that decision and that's probably why lots of us don't know about his story Mm, yeah and to me that is a real indicator of just the superfluous and kind of petty aspect of our big surfing organism that surf media can be that the magazines you know beholden to the companies the companies are just usually a couple dudes who are trying to cash in and commodify things and make a lot of coin and I don't know all that stuff is just way out on the periphery of the most important things in a surfing life to me and so I I love that Jock's story is still unfolding in such a unique way to him you know yeah he made that decision back then he was someone who you know didn't mind the party scene but also liked competing in contests and when Mm -hmm. people were like hey you should stop doing contests man he's like why I have fun doing that or you know, all these silly little pigeonholed categories that can surface in any subculture. He defied. He, yeah, he just slipped he through them. It. And yeah. that's in, you can see that perfectly illustrated with the ability to switch foot in surfing <laughs> and be so malleable. And then also all the way through to now, you know, he's a, a man in his 70s who is so vibrant and enthusiastic and just, you know, buzzing and twitching with energy. Um, and he lives in a space where it be so easy to become the grumpy old dude who wishes it was like yesteryear because when you look at the north shore of Oahu it has changed so radically perhaps more radically than any surf zone on the planet going from a tiny little country town as it would be called country not town like Honolulu to now being pretty much you know an extension of a Californian suburb almost the, the houses are enormous People have been squeezed out by such big money. You know, the whole community around V-Land um, just dissipated in the late 90s, early 2000s, and then just completely gone by a, a, a gated community there now. The lineups are very busy. There's drones and cameras everywhere. There is a lot of opportunity to wish that it was like it used to be. And Jock isn't like that. He's he's still vibrant and still buzzing on the conditions and looking at the water and reading the weather. And I think that's... Finding a, the corner. That is very admirable. It's a really inspiring and hard-earned type of perspective. It seems like it is a tougher journey for men to keep that flexibility and fluidity into older age. Does it seem that way to you? Yeah, I wonder why. It'd be interesting to hear from you all, listeners out there, anyone tuning into this, because I'm pretty sure every one of us could relate to rocking up at your surf spot and knowing there'll be, you know, a pretty uh, crusty dude sitting on the bluff or in the car park saying how good the good old days were. (laughs) And it'd be interesting to know why, so that we don't grow into that. Mm. (laughs) I don't want to become that. I know you don't want me to become that. I don't. (laughs) And so, you know, I feel like it's just really great when we can um, really acknowledge and celebrate people like Jock who have endured so many changing sea and land and cultural scapes and still have that sparkle in their eye and that enthusiasm to learn, that enthusiasm to be useful and have empathy for others and to listen and to put us, the younger ones, kind of in our place and help teach us from their lived example. And so I really hope that this conversation with Jock achieves that for you as you listen to this and 
and that we understand that uh, a life by the ocean is a fortunate life and it's not just for our own benefit. And that's really what I, I was hearing between the words with Jock, that he's, he's lived this incredibly adventurous life and now in his 70s he's, he's seeing that it really, really means a lot to be part of community, to think about others, to help where you can, to not look for that credit, to just do it because it feels good. And that's just one of the many things that I, th- I feel I really admire in Jock Sutherland. Jock, where we always begin with these conversations is by asking about a time or experience after which you were never the same. Do you have a moment like that? Well, when I was five years old and I rode my tricycle off the steps and split my head open, that was one, but you know, I don't remember it that distinctly. <laughs> but um, probably the one where I jumped off of the, the diving platform from about 50 feet because mom said she was going to pay us like $5. This was when I was about eight years old. So that would have been 60, uh, 66 years ago or so. Wow. And I was a skinny little tyke and and I walked to the edge of the platform, looked down, and went, oh, that's a long way to go. Because I had jumped off of Waimea Rock, you know, 20, 25 feet before. But this one, this one was a lot different. And I screwed up my courage and made up my mind and walked back from the edge and waited until everybody else had dove and, and went. And this is in Waikiki at a place called the Natatorium, which is an old, I think, after World War One, saltwater swimming pool. And they had big slides that you could jump on and, and put water in and slide down. But, you know, it, it was kind of dangerous. So that's probably the liability is why they closed it to 30 years ago or so. But uh, I screwed up my courage and ran to the edge, you know, okay, you know, here we go. And I kept my nice straight posture, hands out and stuff. And I wasn't going to do a cannonball or anything. Too scared. But when I hit the water, because my hands were out sideways, uh, it was like a, a, a bad a bad impact with the arms and so basically stung the arms pretty bad but my mom said i looked like a little leaf fluttering <laughs> but uh yeah probably that might be one of my earlier memories of, of something that changed my life and after that it was like okay i can i can handle this just have to land a little bit better but uh i'd already been playing little league baseball for a while when I when I was doing that, but uh, mom and dad, because they're outdoors people, they always had me, you know, um, helping bring in the lobster traps. Dad used to have; he was a commercial fisherman in California, and we would use his traps that he brought over to Hawaii to set out in front of our house by Chun's Reef there, and, and bring in some lobster the next the next morning. So I was in the ocean from, you know, f- fairly steadily from the time I was seven eight years old, and then. Learned to surf on one of dad's old boards when I was eight, nine years old. And by the time I was 11 or 12, you know, I was riding waves that were like head high, not much bigger because it was still scary. But uh, the equipment wasn't very good. But I had um, people helping me with um, getting boards like Dave Brewer by the time I was 14 or 15. And then people introduced me to Pipeline. And so everything went on, took off from there. And Jock, do do you credit that early diving platform experience with preparing you for going over the falls at Pipe? No, because when you're jumping off in the midair, you know, you you can see where you're going to land and then you just have to keep your balance. But going over the falls at Pipe is something different because you're, you're there's a big element of unknown because the wave's got you in its clutches and, and you have an idea what can happen. But you don't want to tense up too much because, or some people say, well, maybe you should ball up, you know, so that you don't get hit by your board. But on the other hand, if you do that, it'll push you down faster and you can actually have more of a chance to hit the bottom. So there's several things that you learn by trial and error. And luckily, I was raised by some people that taught me well enough that, that you try not to get in people's way and try not to overstep your limits although i did that you know a couple of times when i was younger 
And so there were people out there that were kind of looking out for me. Maybe there were some of my friends' dads or some of my older peers that uh, were helping me out there. Yeah, Jack, I'm I'm really curious about that experience f- for you as a, a little fella and I guess your your relationship to fear because you said you you scrunched up your courage and you and you went and you launched off the the diving right. platform there right. and you've already spoken or mentioned your mum a couple times since we started talking and we are aware of your mum's amazing adventures some other listeners might not but I'm curious to know was she I guess uh, your first introduction to fear and how to navigate it especially in terms of the ocean she probably was but the ocean itself was the initiator of that of that sense of fear once you know you got far enough off from shore or you know, you, you encountered a, little, a few bigger waves but um she probably because she was a red cross certified uh, swimming instructor was able to actually at one time certified lifeguards for their water safety instructor badge she made sure that all of us kids were competent from a fairly young age but the the fear factor i'm sure that mom gave us some cautionary tales and and like my dad who was a cigarette smoker he told me son i never want you to smoke and and he took a an an inhale through a a tissue paper and and just that one little inhale showed all the showed me all the tars and and stuff that was in there and so he he also because he was uh, a real uh, a real sailor and, and out in the pretty in, in the pretty wide oceans he was in the caribbean as well as the, the pacific the central and north and south pacific that uh i'm sure i got a sense of what not to do from him as well as my mom but they were both real outdoors people and an outdoors person will be able to tell uh, in the case of a young a youngster how to engage the ability or, or lack thereof on the, the young person that you're dealing with and try to uh, help him get some tools to be able to cope with the uh, the strange new world that he's being thrust into without making him too afraid. But the fear factor, mom and dad, they probably, you know, naturally I was able to absorb from just there being close to me and, and hearing them talk, you know, about the ocean or the mountains or the surf. I've been reading your mom's book uh-huh. over the last mm-hmm. few weeks. Um, her name is Audrey Sutherland, and yes. one of the books that she wrote is called Paddling My Own Canoe. It's mm-hmm. such a beautiful read, and it's so deeply inspiring. She was a single mom of four in the 1960s, found herself drawn to the rugged coast of Molokai while flying over to a neighboring island, and she wrote, quote, some inner wildness there since childhood surged up and answered that wild country and said very simply, yes, I'll come. So in between working to support you all, you kids, um, raising you, she she planned uh, and made her way to Molokai to swim and hike the near vertical north coast cliffs of Molokai. She did it solo, first in 1962 by herself, uh, towing a semi-waterproof bag of supplies, and she went on to do 18 trips total, 11 of them solo, later traveling by inflatable canoe um, to relish in the solace she found there in the beauty. What struck me about Audrey's writing is that she doesn't seem like an overly sentimental person no but she does seem like a romantic that she was drawn to wild beauty and she heeded its call did her modeling as a mother land that way for you what was the experience of watching your mother go away on these wild adventures uh, and come back by the time we were 12 years old 14 years old we realized that she had been not stymied but some of the things that she wanted to do when she was 19 or 20 or 21 years old after she had met my dad had 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 to be put on the back burner because of raising us four kids but by the time we were you know 10 or 15 years old we were able to pretty much handle ourselves and so um my older sister was kind of put in charge of us and uh, off she went for a week or 10 days and uh said okay here's where here's where i'm going you know if i don't come back you know (laughs) here's where to look for me (laughs) but she also was pretty sensible about when she was walking on the boulders there when she was walking between 
a couple of areas instead of swimming that uh, she knew that she had to be careful because if she broke an arm or a leg, that it would be tough to be able to rescue herself being out there. And nobody was going to be coming by to look for it. But she did get very lucky a couple of times as far as people coming by, uh, especially in a moment of great duress when she had not been hydrating enough and uh, her her brain wasn't working as well as it should. And she got into pretty bad trouble, but as as happened as will happen to people that sometimes have lived right, is that there'll be a what seems like a miraculous occurrence that to haul you out of the jaws of death, as it were. Have you had an experience like that? One yeah. of those miraculous encounters? Can you can you tell us about one? Well, being caught inside at Waimea when after dark, when everybody else had gone in and I, I didn't see anybody else when I paddled out, but the two guys that were maybe already on shore, maybe it was Peter Cole and Fred Van Dyke, they were asking themselves, didn't didn't I know that there was occasional closeout sets, which I didn't. And when I had caught a couple of waves out there and uh, it was starting to get dark, I did get caught inside by a closeout set. And uh, luckily for me, having been in the water in some bigger surf, but not that big, uh, up until then helped me with my making uh, snap decisions as far as whether to try to swim, try to hang on to the board or to let the board go or not to dive too deep underneath the, the, the final wave of the set, which for me was quite lucky because it was, as it turned out, the final wave it was the biggest and it closed out. But uh, luckily for me, I didn't dive too deep and therefore get into worse trouble because I was already kind of tired. But the adrenaline, of course, will kind of take over even though you are out of breath. The adrenaline just kind of uh, helps you get a little bit of, of extra extra win. And, and, actual, and in actuality, they say, they, I think it's been some extreme athletes, they've done tests where they have you blow out all of your air and they're just sitting there with an aqualung in case you get into trouble. But what will happen is it's like the mammalian diving reflexes. You'll get a, a little teeny bit of reserve. I guess technically what happens is the, the lungs will pull oxygen from the plasma, if I'm not incorrect here. And that will give you a little bit of extra air in, your, in, in a moment of extreme duress for you to have an extra, say, 10 seconds. But uh, luckily for me, I didn't panic. And just ended up getting you know fairly severe beatings and a dang good lesson about <laughs> looking a little bit longer at the place where you want to go out if it is got a little size or if there's some element of uh, threat, some some challenging element that perhaps you on that day were not ready to have to cope with i'm i'm super interested in in um, what you're talking about there, Jock, because I feel like I can can relate to that feeling of just sort of skipping over the rocks. Yeah, yeah skipping, yeah, yeah. you know, skipping, seeing seeing the conditions to a, yeah. enough of a point where you're like, I want to be out there, I have to be out there, I'm going to skip over the rocks and launch off the rock shelf and paddle out and then all of a sudden might find myself in a very hairy situation. A lot of my friends around home think I have more than nine lives because I get in these situations a fair bit and seem to just sort of s to to squeak through. Um, but I'm curious because it sounds like we might have a similarity in some of those sort of antics. Um, were you going out that afternoon in a state of excitement and enthusiasm or were you just sort of I don't know, blasé and very relaxed. I was excited uh, because yeah. it was like after I had been in California in the summer and, and the board that I was riding, I had shaped myself. It wasn't it wasn't a bad shape. It's just that because it was 8.4 or 8.6, it was too small, of course, for that day. But it was big enough to get into the wave early. It was not like riding too short of a board. But I, uh, when I saw the waves, I went, oh, you know, that looks doable. Maybe I saw a 15 or 20 foot set and decided okay okay yeah I, there's not much light left but i can do this i got a nice board let's go let's go so i, I was excited there was not if if, if there's some good sized waves and you're not that fired up about it well then maybe you should give it a pass because <laughs> you do you do want to have enthusiasm especially if it's bigger if, even if, if it's smaller 
you can just say, well, I'm going to go out for a paddle. And if I catch something, then there'll be a bonus, but I'll still get a workout, you know, and, and there's no big expectations. But uh, on a bigger day, you you double check things. It, you hope and go, OK, you know, I feel all right. Uh, body's all right. The board's good. And, and uh, you know, it doesn't look too windy. Not a big rip or anything. Uh, we'll, give, we'll go give it a shot. And mm-hmm. I, I did catch a couple waves before I got caught inside. I, I took off. What will happen is when you're a goofy foot on a bigger wave, especially in the old days when boards weren't that streamlined, is you'd take off and you try to turn quickly. And and when that happens, uh, you can spin out because you're too high and the board doesn't have enough rail in, in, in the face. And that's what happened to me. And basically, I, I was free falling from maybe three quarters of the way up the face, probably free fell, you know, 10 or 15 feet, but the board was tangled up with me. So I, I hit, kicked the fin a little bit, so I got a small cut on my heel. But that in itself could have been pretty dangerous. You know, getting a board in the head or something mm-hmm. on your on your way down, and it happens. But I got lucky, and so after retrieving my board, I didn't go into the rocks. I was lucky about that because I was able to get back out and I think get one, maybe two more waves. So I, got, I only rode about three or four waves that whole afternoon before I got the comeuppance, you know, the the big statement by mother nature i'm sorry but you didn't look very careful and so we're gonna give you a little bit of a hard lesson here and uh we don't know if you're up for it but here it is anyway (laughs) (laughs) jock you were mentioning riding those bigger sort of clunkier less streamlined boards i just made a film about the physics of nose riding and I was curious to ask you, Jock, about the physics of riding longboards at pipe. What was that experience like? Well, a lot of the early boards were round-railed and not very streamlined, and so guys were curling up their necks or getting caught in the lip or n- not able to make the wave. But uh, luckily for me, there was enough streamlinedness in, in some of the early boards that I was riding for the maneuverability to not be that that tough. So like a, a trestle special, you know, basically streamlined long boards were kind of what I was riding. I don't think I rode too many clunkers, although a lot of my friends and Jerry Lopez likes to like to say that that when he first came out that they were riding some some old clunker warties maybe. Some California board, but uh, <laughs> I told him, well, you know, try to take off on an angle, you know, which which makes a lot of difference. Or if, if like if a board is feels too stiff for you, you get back four or five inches towards the tail end, so it'll it'll turn a lot easier. Mm. Uh, I, I ride a little bit longer mid size boards, eight foot, and they're you know almost twenty two wide, but it, because of the uh, concave bottom and, and the, the the fullness of the rail it, it turns easy and the thruster they turn easy and I can you know ride it in three or four four ways as well as ten. I'm really curious in that in that experience how you would cope with land life after having these huge peak moments in the ocean. Um, well, how were you handling that? Much more quiet. You know, you're very very much. Not necessarily brown, but brought down a notch, but you were you were humbled uh, after a big experience like that, and and you were you were moving more slowly after that, and you were more appreciative of just being alive, and that's that that's a phrase that Nat Young told me when I saw him at uh, an ocean at a, a fundraiser for the Oceanside Surf Museum about six years ago now, uh, because it was the anniversary, 50th anniversary of the World Contest in Ocean Beach that he had won. And he said to me, because you know, I had never considered him an antagonist or a, he was a competitor and I would compete against him. And, you know, he almost ran me over a couple of times when I was paddling out. He had made up the distance like from 50 yards away to right on my tail in about two seconds. So I was very much aware of his ability. But what he told me at this fundraiser there in Oceanside in California about six years ago, he said, Jack, I'm, I'm just... I'm, I'm just glad that you're, I'm just happy for your being alive, you know, because so many other people had, mm. you know, misinterpreted uh, the the challenges that life can give, whether it's in the water or out. So mm. after a big wave experience, a humbling experience, you find yourself definitely changed and your outlook 
any cockiness that you might have had before that experience is definitely far, far away. <laughs> mm. But cockiness is something that, that we humans, can, especially us guys, can get into a lot easier. Women, they, they have so much work that you know, uh, they have so much unpaid work that they do. They, they're a lot closer to the feeling of what's imperative about, about life and what will work and what, what won't and, and what not to waste one's time on. Many surfers and many people who have very high highs, especially in their bodies, come back to land and maybe find it lacking or yeah. uninspiring. And many of us turn to to substances to create those artificial highs and lows. Not necessarily a cup of tea either. No, you've you've experienced the the high highs and the low lows in the water and through substances. Can you talk us through those experiences? Sure. Probably from the time I was fifteen or sixteen, I had, had friends that were a little older that were uh, in the in the import export business. Shall we say they would. Uh, go to Afghanistan and bring back these wonderful rugs with uh, some big chunks, kilos, if you will, of this very fragrant brown or blackish substance. And then they would bring back home. And so they would invite me, you know, 16, 17, no, not even 17, 16 years old. Here, here, eat this, see what'll happen, you know, <laughs> see, if you, see if you like this. And I'd be kind of a overly enthusiastic guy, I, I would do that. But I've learned in my older age that you know, I I will still like take a, a, a little instead of smoking it, I will eat a little teeny bit. I'm we're talking about a quarter of an inch square piece. And and that's that's plenty. You know, I, I don't need to do it every day. And uh Pia, my girlfriend, finds that because she'll have trouble sleeping about from worry or stress or maybe she didn't get enough exercise that day is that the gummies a half a gummy will help her sleeping. And so she's not adverse to Try another little bit of that, and but she just doesn't like it. Uh, when her brother and I would have a puff and go go surf, this is five or six years ago, as I would have a tendency to talk too much. <laughs> so I, I would be talking about something, running off of the mouth, you know, not incoherently. You know, I was just enthusiastic, and I would be, I would see the eye that she would be giving me, you know, <laughs> and she'd be, Did "You have a puff," and I go. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I've learned what will work and what won't work and how to keep it all in perspective. I mean, if you're going to go out and do, say, some some weeding or put uh, putting some plants together or something that's not mindless, not necessarily mundane, but uh, doing something that doesn't require you know, you're using power tools or climbing up on a roof or climbing in a big tree to get some fruit, then you can, you know, you can be a little bit, uh, you can have a little bit of adjustment, enhancement. What did her brother call it? Um, Yeah. One of those things. uh, It sounds like you have a healthy balance with it now. Was that always the case? It seems like you've had a lot of experimentation. After a while, there was more of a tendency to want to try something than not. And for for young kids nowadays, because of the potency of some of the stuff that's out there, it's actually worse than dangerous. It can be lethal. You know, you have 12, 10 or 12-year-old kids going on the dark web and and getting something that they think is a hallucinogen and it actually has fentanyl in it, and they they end up killing themselves. And oftentimes when that happens, you want to blame the parents and oftentimes it is their fault for not having and still not having given their kids the tools to be able to to understand and, and anticipate what what might happen when you're in that kind of uh, an atmosphere or that kind of people. But um, uh, my kids, luckily, they've they've seen me pay some penalties for my insouciances and my you know carelessness is a better word. And so I'm I'm happy that they know that uh, I don't I don't have to resort to uh, mind altering substances. Although you know a little half a glass of wine. My my girlfriend and I are both fairly cheap dates. One glass of wine will do us fine. Thank you. We share it. I'll look over and it'll be two thirds gone. I'm going, hon. You know what what happened to the wine? <laughs> but we're, we're, 
a, a full glass is almost too much for both of us to share. So mm-hmm. I, I, I haven't, I'm, I'm kind of a lightweight now in my older age, but for me, the, the feeling that you get from being out in the ocean and catching some good waves, or even, even if you've only caught a couple of mediocre waves, the, like when I saw Gavin on one of his first waves at Chunks and he's like maybe six, seven years old. And he it was like a, you know, a little three foot wave, but he was climbing and dropping, you know, and mostly had been, you know, just getting his feet. And I saw him just get the, get the right angle, maybe from seeing me or other people or just having an idea because he's also a skateboarder then seeing him, you know, just take, get the right angle on the wave. And I'm just going, yes, he got it. And to me, it's, it's a very solid uh, truth that, uh, you almost get as good feeling from helping somebody else get a good wave as it is from getting one yourself. Like, especially, especially your girlfriend or your wife, right, mm-hmm. folks? Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow, this is, a, but one time, and I keep bringing it up for, not as a lark, but as a reminder to myself, uh, we were at La Jolla Shores and it was nice, you know, like three feet, maybe occasional shoulder high and, here comes this beautiful wave, and my girlfriend and Pia's right in position for her. I go, go, Pia, go. So she goes from Palace for and I'm going, well, wait, wait, maybe there's room enough for me. And I take her, I dropped in on her. I, I basically spoiled her wave. And so she and she was not t- too happy about it. And I, I I haven't forgotten about it. And I'll bring it up now. And then I still owe you. I still have to find you uh, that, that wave, that one wave. <laughs> Were you always so generous in the water, or has this come with the wisdom of age? Well, when I was growing up, there wasn't too many people out. And so because I was younger, you know, the guys tried to get away from me. But if you had waited a while. I'd say definitely with age, there comes a sense of like, if there's not very many waves, you know, you, 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 you wait or you take off behind somebody. If there's 30 people out and there's only two waves in a set and there's a five minute interval between the sets, then you're not going to get very many waves. Maybe you go to the corner or something, but uh, there's a lot of people uh, that say, I'll never surf the North shore again. It's just way too crowded. I tell them, Hey, like at, at Lani Akea, there can be like 80, 90 guys, you know, it can be six or eight feet, 10 feet, and just perfect. But uh, last year, I think it was, as that it was 10 feet and it was real perfect, but there was enough of a west swell and it normally it's a north swell place is that the, the break next to it on the Waimea side, they're called Haltons between Lani's and Jocko's, is the lefts were coming through just beautifully. You could take off on the same wave as the guys were taking off in Lotties and, and go go through Helton's on them. But uh, uh, so there, there's there's still waves here on the North Shore. You just have to know where to go. Uh, you can sometimes just go 200 yards away from the very crowded areas and you've got waves to yourself. I really appreciate hearing that, Jock, in terms of navigating and adapting to the changing times and the changing environment we're all, we're all in. And, and you know, it's it's refreshing to hear your point of view because it's, it seems very easy for a lot of us, especially blokes, as we get older, yeah. to to calcify and to get right. stuck and to get rigid and to say things yeah. like what you just said, like I'll never surf there again, it's yeah, too yeah, busy, yeah. or yeah. I'll never do this again, or I'll never go there, or oh, this place has changed too much, and all these very rigid um, perspectives. So uh, is there something, is there any kind of insight into into um, your decision-making that you could share with us and with the listeners in terms of how to do that, how to stay open and flexible and, um, and so, like, I guess, vibrant instead of calcified and shut down and grumpy? <laughs> well, the first thing, of course, very, very important, very necessary would be having a sense of humor, but not necessarily an overall, you know, well, that was a funny thing, or that looks funny outside, but also to, to turn the video camera on yourself and go, okay, that was kind of doofusy, or that was kind of foolish, you know, maybe I could make a joke out of it. But you, you need to be able to not make fun of yourself so much, but to, to see, to be able to step outside yourself, as it were. And, and to see, you know, where you could have improved, where you could have done better. But, uh, yeah, a sense of humor, but also a perspective about how much of the rest of the world is is just deep in, in 
a quagmire of violence or, or poorness. Um, there's a phrase in, in a New York Times I was looking at, and I think it was um, it was uh, it was a, a poverty that a lot of people are in. Maybe it was not an economic poverty, but a uh, labor poverty where uh, we blokes are, are are happy with doing so much of the housework. Uh, where like a, an hour or two of the housework, and we're going there. I've done fine. And the little lady's done four and a half, and she's going, "Yeah, but I still got to fix dinner, and I got to do that." So it's it's recognizing the, not only your, the needs of of your family, but also in your community. And so I would say the family unit, like say for the Japanese or for the Hawaiians, was very very important. It's like one the there's several books about Hawaiian traditions um, put out by. The Liliokalani Children's Center here, uh, and they're called Look to the Source, Nana Ike Kumu. Uh, Nana means search for or look for. Kumu is like the source or the teacher, but it talks about the old social and cultural practices that were important for the old Hawaiians. And one of them was when dad was going out fishing, most of the time by himself, is that you, mom, and the kids weren't playing around and being frivolous. You guys were trying to hold down the energy and keep things on the on the straight and narrow in the back of the house so that dad wouldn't have you know his his focus upset by what was going going on back at the house so i would say as far as being being flexible and having a good attitude in one's older age it would have a lot to do with um making time i think that was that was what it is it was a, a poverty of time for a lot of people in our world nowadays and so there's a lot of kids that don't they're raised there's too many kids that mom and dad had and so they weren't be able they weren't able to have the schooling they needed even though a lot of kids have strived and got lucky and had people that were helping them and so they they end up they end up having kids of their own and they're still in poverty and so it's a it's a vicious circle but it, it can be broken with uh the recognizance of what kind of effort, you know, what can we do? How much reading do we have to do? Who do we have to talk to, to, to in order to get the the wherewithal, the tools, not necessarily the money, but the training and the recognizance of, of what's important for our development as a human being and um, our developing our ability to be able to help our fellow man because there's just, there's just too much agony and defeat it's funny i should use those two words because that was what the abc world world of sports program used to use as an introduction to their to their program abc world world of sports bringing bringing you the world of athletic endeavor from around the globe and bringing you the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat and i, I was one of the agony of defeat guys <laughs> on Sunset Beach, where I had too much V in the bottom in my board in 1968, and I was going right across the the face, and there was a little crosswell, and the board drifted, the tail drifted once, and then on the second crosswell, the tail spun out entirely, and I went, pardon my language, ass over tea kettle down into the trough, ah! and uh, that that was combined with another shot of a guy going off a giant ski jump and plowing into a gate, blowing his jump, and so. Uh, they, they they used it for about 10 years and they actually turned shot around because I was going regular foot at the time they turned it around so I was going goofy foot uh, and, and I'm going oh okay now I can see how good my regular foot was because now I'm going goofy <laughs> <laughs> classic so, and the TV guys told me oh can you do that again and I go yeah, yeah sure sure <laughs> so I'm, 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 I'm so happy that I was able to be be surfing when I did and to be able to meet Duke Onomoko Duke Onomoko when he is still alive and to actually win his contest and shake his hand and take the winner's trophy because two two months later he, he was dead Apologies for interrupting the conversation but we'd like to take a moment to recognize the generous folks who help make this podcast possible Sun Butter Skincare is committed to protecting people and the planet. 
They make vegan, reef-safe SPF 50 sunscreen packaged in reusable and recyclable tins. They're also the world's first certified palm oil-free sunscreen brand. Check out sunbutter.com.au to learn more about their skin and ocean-friendly lines of sunscreen, surf zinc, and skin care. Thanks also to Gary McNeil Concepts, who make cosmic surfboards for cosmic people. Gaz's boards combine recycled and plant-based materials that are built to last without sacrificing performance. To learn more, head to GaryMcNeilConcepts.com. Right now, because I've been a roofer for 50 years, the knees and shoulders, mostly the knees, are complaining. And they've they've told me in no uncertain terms, if you want to keep roofing, you know, it's not going to be so good for your surfing. And if you want to carry some of those 80-pound bundles on your shoulder up the two-story ladder, uh, we might mutiny on you in the middle of that process. And we're not going to tell you ahead of time, and it's not going to be pretty. Mm. So, you know, uh, and that's one of the things my girlfriend told me was to listen to your body. But uh, so... For, for for we blokes, you know, that, you know, we like to work, we like to push things, we like to be physical. You need to also include um, flexibility, which is, you know, doing your stretching. For me, it's it's all important. You're doing, you know, just it can be just leg isometrics. It can be uh, like a friend of mine who's a kung fu guy, the qigong, which is the, the precursor to your, it's like the tai chi and it's basically just stretching and connecting with the energy that's all around you that's that's one thing about the hawaiians and the japanese and chinese a lot of very very many maybe i would say most native cultures is that they have a high regard for the energy that's shown them that exists not only in bigger things like the ocean and the skies and the mountains but also in individual trees or or rocks and my mom uh, when, when I was about 10 or 11 years old, we were living up on towards the west side, up in the mountains, um, not too high. But she thought that she had noticed what we call our ancestral spirits are called amakua. You know, the, the Hawaiians believe that there were some stones or some formations that, that had uh, the essence of some of their ancestors in them. And they would actually move. And my mom swore that that there was a rock in the middle of the pasture she pointed it out to me she said i think that rock is it walks around sometimes and she said that she had talked to the rancher there from a long long time maybe five or six generations ago the type of a, a ranch guy uh von holt maybe his name was and she asked him does do you have a rock in the and do you know that that rock in the middle of your pasture move sometimes and he says you know about that rock <laughs> somehow oh, well. so it wasn't just her imagining that you know so yeah it, it, it's it's easy to not, to not want to consider that mystical things say magical things so i've learned through mom and dad both because they're they're ocean people and mountain people and they're people of nature that these things can happen and and you need to be ready for them uh mm. so you need to you need to you need to practice being that aware and, and being ready. And the more you practice, like there's a great South African uh, golf player. And he he would say, the more I practice, the luckier I get. <laughs> so, you know, if you practice and you work at it, then you, you're able to see something like that coming. You can anticipate it almost. But when it does happen to you, you, you have the tools, you have the knowledge, you have the the reflexes you have the the inside muscle memory that can that can be able to put that that mm. moment of magic to you mm. so so basically it's, uh staying flexible and and doing your stretching and swimming helps out a lot but if you can if the water's too cold or too sharky the man mm -hmm. in the gray suit right dave yeah, yeah. I, I mean i've seen him now and then when i've been spear fishing you know i've had a couple of fish on my spear and you know, about a six footer, he's cruising around, you know, he's about 30 feet away and he's kind of looking at me and he's going, are those for me? Is that my supper there? I'm going, no, I have a family to feed. I'm, I was just leaving. You have a good afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but anyways, it's, it's all about keeping an open attitude, I guess, but, but, but definitely doing your stretch and your diet is, is key too, of mm -hmm. course. Mm -hmm. 
Jock, in, in reading about the trajectory of your life, two big moments stood out for me as Uh-oh. sort of opposites of one another. Yeah, well, yeah. you you spent two years in the army and two years in prison, and I couldn't help but wonder which was more impactful in the scope of your life. They're about equal. Both of them were, uh, when I joined the army, that was because I was impetuous and I thought that, okay, because I'm not doing too well in college now because I was too lazy to apply myself, that maybe I can make a good goal of it here in the army. But it, it could have been actually lethal a lethal decision because of where we were as a country at that time down in Southeast Asia. But luckily for me, a a surfer who was in a position to help me there in California where I was taking my basic training, changed my orders that I was going to get. So I was, I was stationed in the, in the, in the language school there in Monterey. And they, they had 26 different languages that they would teach to various, uh, all the services, the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, FBI, CIA, and all guys like that, people that were going to go work at, a, uh, at an embassy, say, uh, in another country. But being in jail also was an education in itself, but it was more as a result of my having been really a selfish bastard, if you will, looking to have more satisfaction for my physical body than knowing my mental and spiritual self. And uh, it, it could have cost me really dearly. It, and even now, being away from my kids for a couple of years, you know, even though they would write me letters and things, I know that because they were or even their young selves, you know, 12 and 14-year-old selves were warning me before I was arrested that uh, they didn't want me to be doing what I was doing, and I ignored them. And so... It could have could have cost me their not being with me for the rest of my life. And so when I got back out, I, I was lucky enough to have some good employment by my friend uh, Jeff Johnson out here, whose uh, son, one of his sons was Jack, and the other two brothers, Pete and Pete and Trent. And Trent right now is going to help rebuild uh, a house on my mom's old property. Have you ever been there, Dave, to my mm. mom's property? Yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah, Gav was saying that uh, he was starting to um, grab some of the hardwood yeah. and stuff because yeah, he didn't want those... it to disappear. Yeah, there's still still some things there that 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 can be can be uh, recycled, and like her artwork that's on on the fascia board of the house where she painted uh, uh, the designs that are on top of the the copper cloth from around the Pacific, mm. uh, as well as fish. And her her old cast iron pot that she would use to make chipino in, which is like a, a tomato based bouillon base with with uh, half crabs on the half shell and lobster and fish and everything. And you eat it with a bib. You used to have to wear bibs because you're cracking and you're making a big mess. And I love how much of a foodie she is, and she writes about yeah. that in paddling my well, yeah, canoe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How she would yeah, the, the she would have the bare bones yeah. of. Of all of her supplies, except she would pack these gourmet meals yeah, to yeah. have this special says, treat. Yeah, she says that that was one of the pleasures of having these meals was that it was like a, a sybaritic spoof. It was like a hedonistic almost. Yeah. Like a, a pleasure and indulgence there, which <laughs> made the, the harshness of, of, the, of the paddle, even though because she was a swimmer most of her life, that she was already in pretty good condition. And once she had swum the north coast of Molokai and she finally got into a, a kayak is that those those swimming muscles held, held her in good steed for the kayak oh I'd love to quote her um to you once again in paddling my own canoe she wrote quote in five years the three trips had taught me how difficult it could be but I still wanted to go back it wasn't because of the challenge I didn't feel daring and I didn't think my character needed to be improved by conquering something but now I knew the magnificence of the place, mm-hmm. strong and fulfilling. Was there some masochistic satisfaction in the beatings I had taken? I thought not. It was simply that the tender power of Molokai was far more vivid and compelling memory than the physical pain. Jock, you also have been known to push to the outer edges of your physical capability, I'd say, in the spirit of your mom's adventuring. What what has called you to that edge in your life? Probably being able to do things that were close to being uh, hairy, close to being 
maybe I can't do this or maybe it won't turn out well. And and to have them work out well, so you know that you have a good chance maybe of being able to to do something. It's what what has called me to be able to push myself to that. Well, probably the DNA in there, but also <laughs> growing up with with my peers that were also basically when you get bunch of blokes together and nowadays women too you, you're all together and you're pushing each other but it's not it's not dangerously pushing although sometimes there is that too you know mm. uh, it's like uh, the momentum generation when i saw that movie i really and they talked about it they talk about pushing each other oh he won't he won't he won't go you know he won't mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know uh, uh, sometimes when you take off on something that you think you, you don't you only have a one in three or four chance of making it and you make it and you're going wow did I just make that? But on the other hand, sometimes there'll be a little, a little low tide backwash warble, or the wind gets your board the right way, and you end up like Jack Johnson face planting on the bottom. Or mm. Mark Healy, I don't know, you probably heard about a month ago, we almost lost Mark. He was diving, free diving, as this is one uh, off of uh, between Lanai and Southeast a walk a place called penguin banks it's a big show very good diving over there and he had gone down and maybe not gotten something on his way back up maybe he's down 60 feet maybe maybe more and on his way back up there he turns around and there's this big fish maybe his instinct told him to make uh uku i think it was it's just like a big snapper maybe 20 30 pounds and so he turns around without taking a breath and goes goes back down a little bit and spears him and I don't know if you ever met Dave Wassel. He's mm-hmm. a lifeguard out here. Very, very capable guy. Davey was telling me about it. And uh, on, the, on the way back up with his fish, he's fighting the fish, you know, struggling to bring him back up. Uh, he blacked out. I don't know. He must have been fairly close to the surface, maybe 10 feet, 8 feet or something, because uh, a guy who was a photographer had come back from the boat with a spear they told him hey hey, here leave your camera here go take take a spear again and go back over to where mark is and see if you can find some fish so he went back over there and he gets over to where mark is and mark is sinking back down unconscious and the guy was able to go get him and if he hadn't been there just when he did mark would have been too deep because the photographer wasn't that big of a diver to get him and Mark would, have, Mark would have been gone. And so <laughs> Mosso was telling me that, you know, as will be the case, sometimes when you've come real close is that you're a little bit cocky afterwards, after something like that happens. You know, think, oh, it wasn't that bad, you know, I'll be fine and not think too much out of it. But Wassel told him, hey, you just, it was very close. Or you could have, you, you're that wonderful young daughter, my for years, you could, they could have been by themselves. You know, they could have been alone from now on. Mm. But um, so, you know, Cole Christensen got hurt real bad a couple of years ago. You know, so it can happen. And so you it, it's out, it's it's good to be able to anticipate those kind of things. But you can't always you can't always know exactly what's going to happen. So you have to think of those that are around you. If you're a lone wolf, you know, and, and, you, and you end up paying the ultimate price, then maybe that's okay. Although people that, you know, you like to consider your friends, maybe they're, they'd be pretty upset. But if you have a, a wife and family, mm-hmm. then maybe it's a little bit different. I don't know if he's going to change his ways, but definitely uh, it would behoove somebody that was in a situation like that to be able to dive with a buddy more, right? Mm-hmm. Number one rule of free diving is an, a friend that I grew up with in Florida Russell Brownlee, who passed away recently, and it seemed, it, from from what anyone can tell, it seems like he was practicing free diving in a pool on his own. Oh, and right, right. I might have heard about that. Yeah, same, and he died. Beautiful place. man, beautiful family. Yeah. yeah, kind of, kind of like the young kid from Santa Cruz, mm. Mm. Jay Moriarty. Yes, mm. young Jay. I think he was practicing mm. uh, his apnea too, and in, in very fairly shallow water. 10, 12, 15 feet. Mm. So it it can happen. And we need to try to recognize maybe the preciousness of life more than we do, you know, not be too blase or off the cuff about it or, eh, it's it's all right, you know, it won't get me. But it's like Mm. cancer. It it can get you you very, very easily. So I just got back from the dermatology yesterday. How did it go? I was going to ask you about that. It went okay. It went okay. Uh, There's a few more spots. I mean, I already kind of knew 
Okay, that 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 uh, little that little raised area down there, that kind of tender area, you know, that's likely to be some problems. He said, "Yeah, that looks like a basal cell a carcinoma." And so that, luckily for me, I've only had carcinomas, you know, not mostly mostly all basal cells, but they still decided to operate on them. So they took a, a small biopsy off of one of my leg and the one behind my ear that I had had operated on before. Small areas, you know, there's a little tenderness, and I'm going, okay. Doc, doc, here. Look at this one. Look at that one, and a couple of freeze areas. But uh, I consider myself lucky compared to some people that, because they don't like the feel of sunscreen on their skin, they don't wear sunscreen, and they're out there golfing in the autumn, and then they end up getting melanoma, and, and half the flesh on their leg has to be taken off. <laughs> mm. so, so you go, okay, this this is what can happen. Here's here's the consequences if you don't pay it's attention. Good reminder. Mm. Good reminder as water people to get our skin checked regularly. Yeah, yeah, fair skin water people, and and actually they have been, I think, over the past thirty years, been working on synthesizing melanin, mm. yeah. and. Um, I don't know why it's not here yet that we can't take a pill and then grow a few extra melanin cells. You know, maybe we'll turn a little bit browner, but that'll be okay. That'd be great. Be careful. Jock, I, um, I, I wanted to make sure um, that in our conversation we uh, visited this area of discussion, and, and that is I think it was probably four years ago Lauren and I and little Minoa went to um, Hawaii briefly and we were at Chun's one day. We were playing in the shore break with Mino, and, uh, right, and right, I, looked, right. I looked over at the lifeguard tower. I can't remember who oh, was working. Okay. Someone was at the tower. Um, Maybe I had some smoked fish or something. Um, yeah, exactly. So I, I saw you walking down. I'm like, oh, that's Jock Sutherland. And I was too scared to go up and say hello. I was like, uh, Get out of I don't, you know, I just, I just didn't wait, want to wait, be. You got gray hair on your chin, don't you, Dave? Yeah. <laughs> Come up anytime. Yeah, well, well, then I was just like, ah, oh, I don't want to be another dorky fan coming up saying, joke, joke, hey, joke. No, 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 no. But, no, no, no. but anyway, I saw you walking up with all this, pro, this like amazing yeah, abundance. Full of stuff, this, yeah, like, I think it was papayas and mangoes mm-hmm. and stuff. Anyway, you walked up and you gifted it to the crew under the tower and, and uh, and then probably had a little bit of a chat and, and then went on your way. And I was just had that thought where I was like, wow, look at that. How great. Look at that. I could just see the the aloha, the, oh. the, the generosity, the consideration of others that you have um, and just the, the sharing spirit just seemed to, to be around you. And, um, you know, in the last few years since that time, we've become – um, pretty successful with growing a lot of food, and yeah, and I great. often, yeah, I often think of you because I gift out food to friends and family and people who may be a bit time poor or in need yeah. or or whatever you know, or maybe need a bit more fresh stuff in their diet. And yes, um, hello, and so thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> so thank you for that. And I just wanted to acknowledge that 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 doesn't go unnoticed, and that even little moment like. Like that even though you know I saw that from a distance it was really impactful for me and I wanted to ask you where that, that came from where that came from yeah and it was how I was raised and I tell people like that you know wow you know why did you open the door for me or why did you do this for me and I go oh it was the, not only the way I was raised but also the people in the community that I was raised with corroborated you know what was already starting to be instilled in me from a pretty young age and it's just proven to be not only helpful for for me for my growth as a human being, but it also is 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 very satisfying to the people that saw me as being kind of a selfish young brat when I was younger. Yeah, because my my dad and mom were apart from the time I was like 11, 12 years old, and I was raised mostly with my mom, there was a pretty good vacuum as has been with my own kids you know uh, when i was in jail uh, for 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 at a crucial point of their lives that i was not around and so now i'm trying to make up for it by trying to do things with them and trying to be serious about their reading things that, that need to be read and and recognizing what a what a great gal there they they know what what a accomplished woman my mom was and because they, they were alive for quite a few years while she was around and i tell them kids go give go give uh, go give mama 
a, a neck rub. And they go over there and they go, hey, to, these shoulders look, these shoulders feel familiar, you know, because after 10, eight, 10,000 miles of kayak in there was a pair of shoulders on top of that lady. So uh, it was because, <laughs> because of her and, and Pops's influence when I was young. But I, I would say, you know, if I had to break it down mathematically, I would say at least half her influence and, and half her community I grew up in because I was mostly in the house with her and there was no television then. It was music and books and the mountains or the ocean. And, you know, it was the natural environment. And nowadays you you look at how much time some kids are allowed to spend on their devices and you, you look at, you know, 15 years later when these kids were allowed to have that much time, what kind of human beings they are or are not. And uh, mm-hmm. when, I see, when I see parents do, doing that for their kids, uh, you know, working with Wayne DeSoto, you can see that where some kids can't even swim that well, but once you get them out in the water and catch a couple little waves on the stand-up board or take them in the canoe, that they warm to it. And so there's a lot of a lot of work for we people that can give some of our time to an organization like Dwayne has the the Children of the Ocean. I loved at the back of paddling my own canoe your mom's list of the 15 things that every teenager should be able to do. Such a helpful list, so interesting. And I was wondering if there's anything you would add to that list. Well, she updated it after a while. It used to be just 15 things. It's a great list, and people comment on it a lot. And even even because her her book is still selling, not just you know four or five copies a year around the country and around the world. I personally am getting royalty checks from Patagonia, a couple hundred bucks, two hundred fifty dollars, you know, a couple times a year, which is great. You know, oh, thank you, mom, thank you, mom. But it reminds me of what else I have to thank her about. But the, the list of things initiative that is one oh. that might be the most important on the whole list. Mm-hmm. And I, I would add, instead of just see work to be done and do it, I would have a comma after that and say, and not look for credit for having done it. And mm-hmm. so I tell people, yeah, you 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 find you find a some old sourpuss or a lady, you know, that's you know kind of disappointed in her life, and she seems a little sour, you know, or she, she seems a little grim or dour. Is that? You go and do something for her and 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 not let her know that it was you and watch from afar as she goes, Whoa, somebody likes me out there. And see him change, you know, the whole body chemistry. Oh, and it's like, uh, I think this is in the Times again where they're talking about uh, smiling. Uh, you know, when I, people, when I tell people, I go, when I see people frowning, I go, you know, it takes more than 100 muscles to frown, only 16 to smile. You have to work at being unhappy. Thanks for listening with us today. If you have a spare moment, please leave us a review or consider sharing an episode with a friend. Both help us to find the very best stories from our global community of water people. This episode was edited by Ben Alexander. The podcast soundtrack was composed by Shannon Sol Carroll, with additional tunes improvised by Ben Alexander. We'll be continuing today's conversation on Instagram, where we're at Water People Podcasts. <laughs>